Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. By the time I had started middle school in the mid-90s, a social divide had already taken place amongst the pubescent population in my hometown of Noonan, Georgia. The influence of Seattle had infiltrated much of the culture, and a line in the sand had been drawn. You were either a grungy, or you were a prep. My sister, who was two years ahead of me in school, gave me the whole rundown before I entered sixth grade. And even though I had seen the film version of The Outsiders prior to entering middle school, I chose to essentially become a soch. In retrospect, I do realize that this choice was not the cooler of the two options. To be fair, my decision primarily had to do with the fact that all the pretty girls at my school exclusively dated preps, but another contributing factor was that I just didn't listen to grunge. Had I chosen to be a grungy with this essential criteria absent from my identity, well, that would have made me a poser, which my sister had also informed me was socially unacceptable. At the time, when it came to the alternative rock music of the day, I honestly didn't get it. I saw in it a darkness and a perceived macho-ness that I just did not relate to as a suburban kid who really loved his mom in khaki pants and whose favorite food was soup. I wasn't a bad boy, nor would I ever be one, and frankly, it would have been laughable had I tried. But because of this perception that I had at the time about modern music, it did make me pretty dismissive of it. I really didn't see anything in it that was mine and found way more kinship with the sunny-on-the-surface pop music found on my local oldies radio station. Even when I did eventually embrace the modern music of my time and it became a huge part of my identity, I still gave preferential treatment to the bands and artists with a sunnier disposition. Because of this preference, and the natural inclination to constantly seek out and consume new music, by the time I was in high school, I would eventually find my way to and fall in love with indie pop. My love for this subgenre first came about through my discovery of an eventual obsession with the Athens, Georgia-based indie label Kindercore Records, which for me was this gateway to a number of other indie labels and artists mining similar sounds. And in becoming this full-fledged disciple of indie pop, it really was only a matter of time before I happened upon the music of Holiday. I believe that I first became aware of Holiday through the label March Records, which had released an album by Kleenex Girl Wonder that I had really loved. This was around my senior year of high school, which also coincided with my discovery of eBay. The website quickly became one of my go-to places for buying CDs, especially those that I knew would not be at the one record store in my town. The first songs I heard by Holiday were from their self-titled debut record. I really liked what I heard, so I went about trying to find myself a copy on eBay. Initially, I wasn't able to find a copy of the self-titled album, but I did find an auction for their second record, Ready Steady Go. And even though I had not heard any songs off of it, I thought I'd still take a chance. 
So I put in my bid and eventually won. Now around this time, my mother was constantly giving me shit about my eBay spending habits. To be fair to her, I did spend most of my money on CDs, and maybe the more responsible thing to do at the time would have been to save a little, considering that I'd be going off to college the next year. But I think she more so was just tired of me always asking her to write a check. Since PayPal did not yet exist, and also I didn't have my own checking account. So in order to save myself the headache, I decided to just ask my friend Mark Cotton, who already had his own checking account, if he'd be willing to write me a check. Which he did. So I mailed it off, and when Holiday's Ready Steady Go finally arrived at my house, probably around two to three weeks later, I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. I'm Matt Snow. On the record, I play guitars. There's a chance I might have done some hand claps or shitty keyboard lines here or there. But yeah, primarily guitar. My name is, uh, is Josh Schnett, and um, I was uh, also played the guitars and uh, sang for the band. I guess, as Matt said, I also tinkered on piano and did, did other bits and pieces. No horns, though. No horns. We, we, used, we relied on professionals for that, that work. I think Josh is also underselling here because you know, Josh wrote the songs. Growing up in separate areas of the country, the members of Holiday would eventually meet and begin playing music together while attending Yale University. I kind of feel like I only went to university to be in a band. It was just sort of like, I had a band when I was in high school, and my whole plan was to have a band when I was in university, and so um, that was yes, kind of same. my big that was my big ambition <laughs> when I went there. I didn't know what degree I was going to do or, or anything, but I knew it was a good place to do music. So uh, I was a lot more interested in being in a band than I was in any particular academic topic uh, until I figured out what I wanted to do that way. Yeah, I 100% agree. Like in high school, man, I in high school I did like everything. I was like all the nerd shit, right? So like math club, debate team, uh, French clubs, like, you know, all that crap. Um, and when I went to college, I was just like, you know, I don't want to like commit to anything, but I want to be in a band. Um, that was literally the only thing I cared about doing when I went to college. Um, so, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, yeah, we had that, we had that in common. Josh and I were in a physics class together, but we did not know each other, but Josh had a look that made him like stand out. He had a leather jacket and these like black Doc Martens and he always like had headphones in. So I knew he had to be like different than the rest of the people in the class. But I was, like, really awkward and didn't have any clue how to, like, talk to people. So separate from that, I walk into the mailroom at school one day, like, um, and that's where people would put, like, posters up in this, like, announcements. And there was a poster that, you know, Josh and Andrew had put up looking for, I think at the time they were looking for specifically female 
vocalists, uh, drummers. Yeah, I didn't want to sing, by the way. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. So, like, really, like, you know, looking for a bunch of people, you know, but, and, um, but, like, the bands they listed, you know, I remember things like Teenage Fan Club, and I think maybe, like, Big Star, and Heavenly, and, like, K Records, and there was more than just that, but uh, those are things that come to the top of my head, and I thought, well, I like all this stuff. All I want to do is, like, play in a band. I was a freshman, and I just like called the number. I think like I got an answering machine and said, you know, like, hey, I really like these bands. I'm not a girl, but, uh, you know, I play guitar and I would love to like meet y'all, maybe play in the band. And they called me back. I remember going to Josh's dorm room and I think we just listened to records and drank beer and talked. And like I was in the band before they even heard me play. So. Yeah, that was there. <laughs> It wasn't really a musical audition uh, process. It was more about like like-mindedness. And I think that was true all along the way. I mean, later on, we 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 actually wanted to make sure the guitars were in tune and and the music, um, you know, became more ambitious. But I was obsessed when I arrived in terms of like, uh, you know, doing doing music and and actually it was I think our second was it sophomore year, Matt? I can't remember when I had all that gear shipped to the, to the annex. In, yeah, uh, the language. Language. So I, I had a room that lived up. So I lived above the language lab on, on campus and um, basically I had to move all the furniture out of my room to take this, this, this shipment of, of gear. So we basically bought like PA mic stands uh, at a Marshall half stack and another amp at a bass amp. Uh, some, there were some keyboards, uh, eight track reel to reel mixing console, it was just ridiculous. It basically took up <laughs> it took up the whole room. So there was room for me to sleep, but not actually do any schoolwork. It was just it was just filled <laughs> with um, with gear that I I bought. So when I was a kid growing up, um, I had this job. I got the, the the best job I could when you're like 13 or or 14. So I was a golf caddy, and every in every summer I'd, I'd, I was a caddy, and so I saved up all this money in like that first year going to university i just went into my local music store and i'm just like okay i'm just gonna buy all this shit <laughs> i just want to have it all all sent to my dorm room with the help from an alesis drum machine jeanette snow and bassist andrew park would begin working on music together under the name wimp rocket the three of us basically worked together for about a year uh, and in fact these guys they came and lived in my house in illinois for about three months in between our freshman and sophomore year just to work on writing and recording. Our songwriting process was pretty collaborative. Yeah. Um, I mean, because I had to write lyrics, that also meant that I typically had to come up with um, a melody bit. And I think we we're quite unconventional in how we uh, approached songwriting. So we were kind of approached songwriting as looking for hooks first and then how to fill in content in order to make a hook into a song so i think yes um, like the way the onion writes the headline first before the article <laughs> something something like that um the idea was there's got to be a hook and it, rather than a a lyrical idea or an emotional uh you know piece of of history it was like let's find a hook and once there is a hook then we would work together to put everything around that and i just had the unfortunate job of having to sing something you know when we're like okay well that's a cool hook but someone's got to sing something because we ain't an instrumental band here right so so we kind of went backwards i think a lot of people work the other way they've got kind of this 
you know, this lyrical intent and, um, and then write a song based on that. But there were a few overlying principles when we tried to do songs. And principle one was, there's got to be a hook, right? No hook, no song. That's it. <laughs> it's out. <laughs> so that was one. So all songs start with hooks. Principle two was, if a song's longer than two minutes, you better have a damn good reason or a really good middle eight, or there's, a, there's an outro that's got to be in there, right? So it was, it was really about making sure that there was not a lot of downtime or wasted time in the songs themselves. So we had a short, like a pop song is meant to be short and hooky. So that was part of what went into the, the writing. And third, I think for me, you know, kind of lyrical content and, um, you know, lyrical intent in songs was something that got filled in after the hook and, and after the harmonics and after like, okay, the baseline, okay, that's a great baseline, Andrew. Like, how are we going to, what are we going to build around that? How sparse should it be? Like, what, what, should, what should it sound like first? And then it was like, okay, well, what is the content of the song going to be? And this gets to, to my mind to what I think of as the, the underlying aspect of what the kind of holiday is about is this concept of uh, what we think of as a happy, sad song, right? So all of the songs, for the most part, and there's a li- there are a few exceptions that crept in, but the intent is for the music to be upbeat. But the, um, I think the experiences, as Matt probably talked about like growing up or my experience, was, were generally ones of alienation. And, I, and in some ways, I didn't really think about this when I was writing because I never ever thought of myself as a writer or a singer. I was a musician and I liked to make pop music. And in order to do that, I had to write lyrics and I had to sing something because we couldn't find a singer. <laughs> so that's the reality. But, you know, with a little bit of hindsight and thinking, um, you know, the underlying lyrical content in all of the music is, is one of, um, is one of uh, I would say, uh, well, there's an element of nostalgia and then there's an element of escapism, right? So all the songs are pretty much either about go on, <laughs> you guys go out and have fun. I'll, I'll, I'll sit here alone and, and read a book, which was probably <laughs> emblematic of my, of, my, of my life earlier at the time. Or, um, or, or one of escapism, let's get out of here, let's go someplace else, right? In all of those things, those are, those are not satisfying experiences. They're not things that, um, they're not happy moments, right? So the idea was upbeat music, happy music with uh, an undercurrent of, of longing, nostalgia, or sadness for something that you can't have. When people say, well, you know, what was, what was your band about or what was music for you? And I'm like, for, well, for me, it was about trying to create this contrast Right, this confusing contrast between, you know, the the concept of um, you know, the concept of the Saltenbank, right? Which incidentally was was my friend Dave collects uh, clown paintings, right? So you remember Matt? He's had all this, all these yes. cl- creepy clowns on his yes. walls. And actually, I just thought, you know, I thought actually that's really what the band is about. And actually, Andrew's favorite <laughs> track was always "Tears of a Clown," right? Yeah. And that's you know, in a nutshell, if you want to understand what the band was about. That's it. We're a happy party. We're hard drinking Ivy League motherfuckers on the outside, but on the inside, life ain't so good. And uh, and that's ultimately that's ultimately what all the content and and all the lyrical content ultimately comes back to in, in this band. Hearing you describe it that way, Josh, is super validating for like how my nostalgia for it feels. You know, yeah, um, because yeah, man, like my childhood sucked. <laughs> you know, like, uh, and um, I never felt like I fit in. Uh, 
you know like playing in this band was like my kind of like lifeline to expression and we definitely had like a conscious philosophy like grunge was the order of the day um certainly in terms of like what was most popular and uh we were doing something very not that we were just very uh into the short sweet pop song in the summer of 93 the band travels to Jeanette's hometown of Chicago to record their My Roommate Joe EP with producer and engineer Dave Trumfio. Trumfio, who would go on to work with a number of notable acts, including Built to Spill, American Music Club, and Wilco, had known Jeanette some years prior, having worked at the local music store near Jeanette's high school. My high school band was actually his first, his first recording uh, effort, more or less. We helped him to to put his uh, his studio together in uh, in downtown Chicago uh, back in in the '90s in exchange for some studio time, and that's actually how we got our first record done. Now he's out in in LA, and he's got a pretty big complex out there with a few bunch of audio rooms and a he runs a bar entertainment complex there. So part of our overall sound has a lot to do with Dave. And, uh, and stuff that he thought would sound good, basically. Yeah. So we would play, and he'd be like, oh, dude, dude, we should do this. And we'd be like, all right, let's, let's try it out. Prior to recording their debut EP, the band decides to change their name and would receive some unexpected help in doing so. It was when we were living in Highland Park the summer, um, and yeah, we were playing with um, Paul as the drummer, and we were deciding we didn't want to go by Wimp Racket anymore. Um, and part of that studio time that we got from Dave Trumfio to record our first EP, uh, we wanted to do a magnetic field cover on that. So the song Candy. And I remember, uh, I think it was Josh who, who called. Um, we got their number and Josh called uh, Claudia. And we, we just looked to... it up in the phone. There was no internet yeah. again, so we just called the Boston Directory Assistance, and they had some details on their self their self published first record at the time. Had a copy of that, and so we just found them through dialing up the Boston phone directory, and uh, and Claudia answered the phone, and um, it was a pretty funny conversation. He just said, "Hey, we're this band you haven't heard of, and we want to cover one of your songs, and we just want to know if it's okay." And the first thing she says is, hey, that's great. What are you called? And we said, well, we don't know yet. And, um, and she said, that's no problem. Don't worry. Stephen and I come up with band names all the time. Give us your address. And a week, and a week later, we get this postcard with like 15 band names written on it. And uh, we just picked one. So, uh, yeah. And I would say some of, if I remember correctly, some of the names on that postcard ended up being song titles. We, we named our publishing company strange flavor chicken which was on that postcard um jersey barriers i remember being another one on there which is kind of like a stephen obsession um yeah and then they did another record about uh i think in the next year and they called the record holiday which um was you know a coincidence i guess so uh I mean, you never name a you never name a band like that now. Again, in pre-internet, it's fine because there wasn't anything to search on. Now you'd be like, "Why would you name your band something? It's not gonna, it's not searchable properly." Needing a permanent drummer, 
The band convinces their friend and classmate Calvin Chin, who had no previous experience with the instrument, to join the band. Calvin's a bit of the odd man out. We actually dragged him into being the band because we couldn't, we couldn't find a drummer, and we just thought he'd look good and would get women <laughs> to come to the shows, which was true. Yeah, he was cute, you know. He looked very good playing the drums with his head bobs, uh, you know, just very Beatle-esque. We just told Calvin, like, we're there's this drum set in the basement, and we're going to go let's buy some cymbals for it, and you're going to play drums. So, um... <laughs> That that is accurate, and and we set those drums up in a practice space, and I would just like strum like a one four five chord progression slowly. And Josh taught Calvin how to play the drums. Yeah, he liked Teenage Fan Club, and he was a good looking guy, and he was in my dorm. So yeah, and he came to all our shows, and uh, <laughs> you know he he was into um, what like Sega hockey, right? That was like really big with our crew at the time. So. I think we played our first show, the four of us, like less than 30 days like after the first time he sat behind the kit. So kudos yep. to him. That was ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> after self-releasing three EPs, the band would come to the attention of the Chicago-based independent label, March Records, who would release their self-titled debut full-length in the fall of 1995. this EP that we you know pressed ourselves and tried to sell at gigs and talk to people about uh, Skippy who was running March really liked it and we got in touch and he said yeah I want to do your your full length record so um, that's basically how we got the how we got the funds together to pay for the time to uh, to do the first record um, that first record was done in a, a complete whirlwind trying to remember now. yeah yeah we did that we did in a weekend two, right two days yeah i mean roughly two days yeah two and a so, half days something like that we drove through a snowstorm overnight from connecticut to chicago like on a thursday and i think we got there early in the morning went to the studio and just slept on the floor for a few hours and then got up and through like friday saturday and part of sunday cranked through like basically the first yeah. album and then one day for tracking tracking everything that evening for doing a lot most of the most of the vocals and then and then a day for mixing most of it like 90 percent of it and then we buggered off yeah we had a week to record uh our second album or just, that was a luxury just to, i know to do like <laughs> like a week to do a record you <laughs> like who needs that much time oh, overdubs yeah this is great yeah <laughs> Following the release of their self-titled record, the band would quickly begin to work on new material. I think a lot more about that record was a, a conscious effort 
in every respect relative to the first record we did. When we did the first record, I mean, we had done an EP, and as a band, we had lots of different interests and lots of different things that inspired us or things that we liked, and we thought, well, maybe we could do something like that. When we got to the second record, having done some recording and having kind of figured out what the four of us did well and what we didn't do so well, and kind of coming to a a bit of a sound and also a sound in the philosophy at the same time. I mean, it sounds super pretentious. Um, it wasn't intended to be pretentious, but, you know, there was definitely thought in, I think, what we did as a band. You know, like, it's a short record, and, like, short songs were part of, like, the band philosophy, um, as were short sets and short performances. I mean, I think as a band, we just thought, look, I'd much rather play for 25 minutes and have people come back from the bar and be like, oh, I've missed that band, and have other people be like, man, you should have been here. They were great, you know, but now they're gone. Rather than it's like 50 minutes, you're like, oh, are these guys going to get off the stage, right? So we're like, you know, it doesn't matter if you're good or bad. The shorter we are, the better it'll be. And that philosophy kind of translated into songwriting. The idea was show up, don't mess around, play the song, you know, have a hook, do the hook, do the hook again, uh, and now you're done. Now stop doing it and, and move on quickly to the next thing. So, you know, these are things that we all we kind of figured out when we did the first record. The first record was a lot of experimentation and it was very quick. I mean, listening back to the first record, you can we can still hear, you know, I, on, you know, Matt's had a a, uh, a music man cabinet for his amp. And I can I can still hear now in the recording that the rattling of the front cover, which we should have tightened up before we started uh, recording. Um, it, there was it was a really rushed effort and i'm super proud of it and i really like a lot of the songs on it but by the time we got to the second record we had a much better idea of what we wanted to accomplish musically and you know how to spend a little bit more time on some of the arrangements another thing i want to say about right the first album as it was released you know i think three of those tracks were pulled off of uh seven inch singles you know um, so they weren't, that album wasn't even all recorded in the same session and what was like Josh said, it was like really rushed. Um, and, uh, I think prior to that, I think we had kind of like, our goal as a band was to put out a seven inch and, <laughs> and by the time we recorded that album, I think, you know, like we'd put out three ourselves. So it was kind of like almost like, well, what the fuck do we do now, you know? Um, and to have Skippy, like, come out and be like, yeah, let's make a record. Um, you know, by the time we made the second record, you know, that's like almost a year had passed. You know, we'd been playing more shows. Songs had cycled through the set. You know, I think Josh mentioned before that we we're just kind of always trying to write new songs. Yeah, we're kind of, like, trying to evolve. I think getting to be more, like, I don't know, us rather than a band that had a song that sounds like the magnetic fields and this band that has a song that sounds like pavement not to say that like on the second album there aren't influences kind of like all over the place and in your face but uh i feel like it's more cohesive i think we were conscious of it at the time in terms of what we what interested us as a band and what we wanted to do musically and how that contrasted a lot with what was happening uh, at the time. So, 100%. so at the time, you know, you have to rewind to like 95 and 96 and the entire world was really focused on 
uh, Nirvana and um, and a lot of the music coming from Seattle and the West Coast. And, and I enjoy a lot of that. And I've got nothing but good things to say about Kurt Cobain and all that. But it was pretty overwhelming. And I remember, I think, Matt, our first record, we got a, a write-up. We were covered in the AP. And, and the cover on the issue that we got our record view in had the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So th- this is the, the sort of the, the zeitgeist of the era was very much um, shirtless rock guys. It was a very rockist uh, type of thing. And when we went to make this record, and I think as a band, we liked a lot of these things, but we also liked the idea of of a, a sort of you know a Don Quixote attempt to do something that would was fun and and relevant, but almost completely different and a little bit orthogonal to to to, to the zeitgeist of the era. So we, we were oddballs, and um, we were equally influenced by bands like Herman's Hermits as we were at, at any rock band. Right. So, you know, we, we really enjoyed Pavement and, and we liked Nirvana. And we liked a lot of the other bands of the era, but we're also really into shoegaze bands and particularly Motown and, and 60s bands. So if you take all that and you kind of just stir it all up in this kind of messy cauldron, like, you know, kind of the holiday is, is what came out of that. For their sophomore effort, the band would once again travel to Chicago to work with friend Dave Trumpio at his king size sound lab studio. The studio is pretty straightforward. One one live room in you know in a vocal booth that also got used to overdub some guitar parts and things like that. And then a, and then a mixing room. So nothing nothing complicated. And then there's a lot of gear floating around. <laughs> a lot of gear. Dave has always had an ambition to do audio engineering. He worked at a studio uh, downtown in, in in Chicago as a assistant engineer and kind of cut his teeth um at, at that at that studio oh, i'm trying to remember the name now it's where frankie knuckles did all the original chicago house stuff seagrape seagrape that's right that's right uh but dave when he had the opportunity to get a space uh down on division in uh in downtown chicago and build a studio i said look i want we want to help and uh you know maybe you can you can spot us some recording time once it gets built. So that's really how we got uh, our, our first recordings done. So it was obvious uh, that was how we were going to do our our second record. And and Dave's a really important contributor and influence to um, to the overall sound of the record. Some of the music and you know ideas on some of the tracks for sure. I mean, it's definitely really important in terms of the production. Uh, it's a fully analog recording um, from from start to finish. Um, as far as I'm aware. Matt, do you, uh, I think I've got that right. Yeah. I think that predates like anything. Nobody had pro tools or anything. Pro tools. I think, yeah. I think Dave might've had pro tools when we cut the last record. Yeah. Um, but no, I'm pretty sure this one was just like straight uh, analog. It's a two inch Ampex reel to reel. 16. Yeah. 16 track, uh, two inch type yeah kind of interesting this whole you know kind of this mid to late 90s era was um you know you had things like napster and everyone had an email account but the world was not really connected in the way that it is that it is now and you know the music technology was was pretty primitive to be honest if you wanted to overdub you had to keep you had to rewind the tape and you had to do you know <laughs> do it again yeah punching in, punching in and punching out meant literally punching in and punching out right not clicking yeah. so so yeah, it was a pretty conventional recording. 
And in the end, they made a record. It gives way to a propulsion of four-to-the-floor rhythms and an ascending horn section. Ready Steady Go commences with the track Here We Are Again, an efficient slice of indie pop that acts as the perfect introduction to the ethos of this record. That was the idea. <laughs> like we want, we want to get that feel going, right, and a four-to-the-floor drum thing happening as an opener. So when we went through all the, the songs and how to sequence them, it's just obvious sort of opening track. We, that's how we'd open a lot of shows as well. I remember uh, the bass part. So uh, Dave Trumpio doubled that opening bass line on the upright um, acoustic bass. So um, there's like both Andrew's electric bass and the acoustic bass sound there um, at the uh, very beginning. So that's just a nifty little trick that Dave did. Well, molting in general, I don't think I could have gotten away with vocalists if we, if vocalizing if we didn't molt. So dirty little secret. That I think it was Dave Crawford from Poor Dog Pondering. He still did, he did most of the horn work on the record. He did on the first record. I can't remember now, Matt. I think that's yep. right. Yeah. Um, and at the time, it's interesting with this record because when we played live, we were a lot louder and a lot rawer. I think than anyone, if you'd heard this records, it, it is, it, it has a very, it has kind of a sedated feel in, in some ways. Um, it's hard to explain. We were just a lot louder in some ways when we played live, but it, that, that does translate into the production in certain, in a lot of places when we were doing, trying to do the arrangements and stuff, I would just say, forget the trump, just use French horn instead of a trumpet, right? Like, or like, let's like muffle a little bit. Like let, we just wanted to bring, uh, this kind of soft, it, the record has sort of a soft veneer on it. Even, even the tracks where there's like a, a grungy guitar or whatever, there's kind of like a, a very, like a, a, a synth pad kind of below that just to, just to smooth things out a little bit. So yeah, it's not as brash as, as it could be. Uh, and that was all, that was by design. Um, and, and in contrast with, um, uh, with how we did things live, which was basically we we got nervous, so you get louder and faster. <laughs> I don't have any recordings of our. I don't have any recordings of us live. Well, actually, I I do, but I, I wouldn't share them with anyone. But all the songs are about thirty percent faster and and uh, and a lot louder because um, that's just what happens. 
um, but I think the record is more is more indicative of the kind of sound we're going for. Continuing the short and sweet spirit of the previous track, Gents is an expertly crafted arrangement of sprightly strummed guitar chords, gentle vocals, and quivering synth lines. The arrangement on the song I'm super happy with. The reason we put it a second is it was kind of like the single that came before the album or with the album is further on in, the, in there, but this would have been, if we'd, if we'd had another single for the record, this would have been the, the single, I think. And... Um, it's one of the few songs that that has the original that has the original name, which has nothing to do with the song. Uh, when we were building songs, they were all, as I mentioned, they're kind of like sketchbooks, like works in progress. And the actual content of the song would o- would only come towards the end. So in rehearsals and for practicing, uh, all songs would be named after a top shelf pornographic magazine until such time as it was clear what the song was actually about. <laughs> so all of the songs actually have normal titles now, except this one, where we just couldn't be bothered to change the name of the song, which was the, the, the name that it was given while it was being worked on in, in rehearsals. Um, and, and I'll add that, you know, this name survived primarily because unlike virtually all the other names, this name is indecipherable as a pornographic name. Yeah. If if we didn't tell you that, you never would have known. Yeah. So you'll um, never know which one was double <laughs> D fever or you know, or leg action or whatever. Well, you know, yeah. you'll never know. You're gonna have to guess for the rest of the tracks, but this one stuck. So um, you know, it was a more innocent time. Uh and and that's that's that was just convenient code for us when we were rehearsing to know which thing to start on next. So like the keyboards and, and I'll say so Dave definitely had a collection of keyboards and he was the kind of person who was always trying to collect more keyboards. Um, and so you would roll into the studio and he would have something to show you and he, you know, he, he's desperate to get it on the record. Um, and that's great because, you know, I think we were very open to suggestion and we loved keyboard sounds. So it's like, yeah, like, the more shit you want to try, the better. Let's, uh, you know, I think on the first album, there's even like a track that's named after the keyboard that's on it. So, (laughs) I mean, I also had this like fetish for like toy instruments and weird sounds. So I was always trying to bring things into the studio or I had this like really crappy little Cassia tone that was like a 22 key and it was always out of tune no matter what you did. You know, I'm always like, let's try to get this on this one, you know? So, um, (laughs) Really, anything that like, yeah, could be added as a hook that sounded good and like fit—that was kind of what we were open to. Yeah, it was. It was less about novelty and more about the fact that we just didn't want to have a record that just had guitars on it. I was more about having a 
uh, a more diverse palette of things happening uh, sonically. melodica-based homage pain, an exuberant keyboard-assisted chorus. The track Prostitutes in Town, a song in which the band had previously recorded and self-released a version of some years before, exemplifies the band's penchant of pairing less than instant lyrical matter with sugary sweet melodies. This is kind of a funny story because we, we also had this philosophy that it was perfectly okay to, to steal things or um, as long as you were blatant about your influences are stealing things. When we played uh, the track with Dave, he was messing around with um, uh, with Rick. It was right. a melodica, yeah, yeah. And started playing the uh, the hook to Love Vigilantes uh, by New Order over the song. And we were just like, that's great! And he, and he just got cracked up. He's like, that's Love Vigilantes. And we're like, I don't care. It's going on the track. So we, we modified it a little bit. But it was very intentional because obviously we'd already done the song before and it was our song. But by adding in that particular hook as well, it was a little bit of a knowing nod. It's like, look, if, you, if you're a fan of these things, right, we want, we want you to know. We want you to crack up and be like, you know, they, they, they just blatantly stole this, this hook from, from New Order <laughs> um, because it sounded good. It just worked with the song. So... It was a little bit like it's one of those serendipitous things that wasn't supposed to happen. It, it ends up going on a record. True story. I got an email um, after the album came out. Uh, someone was very uh, upset about that particular theft. Um, I I don't remember who it was, but you know, I think it was something to the effect of, "Did you think people wouldn't notice that you ripped off New Order?" I'm just like, I you know, like it's it's an homage. I mean, there's like. I'm like, as a guitar player, I stole things all over this record. So you yeah. found the most obvious thing that we put on here. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, you were, it was intended. It was intended to be. Uh, to be You're supposed to, be, to, to be see it, yeah. you know. Like. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't speak for Matt or or any of the others, and I won't. But um, I, I've led a, a pretty clean, living, uh, kind of drug-free life, and. Um, uh, and, and generally been the kind of on the straight and narrow track in most things. I'm a bit of a control freak. So, um, but lyrically, we were really heavily influenced by a band called The Frogs and some of their early material, uh, including a record called It's Only Right and Natural, which we listened to pretty much nonstop, I think, for a year. 
which has some of the funniest lyrics uh, ever. Um, there was something about writing about um, there was writing about drugs and prostitution, having not experienced any of it, but also kind of understanding why people would would find themselves in 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 these experiences. Um, again, you have to remember, we're writing this. I was what, twenty years old or something at, at the time. We were doing this for twenty one. Uh, I didn't know anything, <laughs> and uh, it, you know, so so a lot of the you know a, a lot of what we talk about, you know, whether it's um, anything in the songs they're not things that we experience personally they were they were kind of our ideas of of things and you know prostitutes in town is a is a, is a good example of that and and the and again the vibe of the song is really like look i'll be the responsible one you guys go have fun you know it's another one of these kind of alienation oriented uh lyrics that that doesn't have it's not based on any particular experience or uh or or memory it's a, it's more of a philosophical uh exploration <laughs> right when you're when you're 20 and you've never been with a prostitute nor you don't, you don't know anything about it um uh, but after listening to the frogs for a year it, it seems like a perfectly good idea to to, to to make this your lyrical content of a musical backing that combines the spirits of sarah records with stacks the warm yet wistful sandra is a mid-tempo number in which jeanette sings for and about a female that did not actually exist. There are lots of references to, to female names in, in these songs, and virtually none of none of them relate back directly to to specific females. I'll just I just want to have that officially on the record for anyone who's listen, anyone who might listen to this podcast. Um, there is no there is no sense. There, there are, again, they're they're imaginary journey. I mean, Matt, how much life experience did we have at the time when we were in the band? The band was our life experience. We didn't do shit yeah. before that. We exactly. literally didn't, you know. We 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 were we studied. We lived at our parents' house. We 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 played around with guitars in the basement. We didn't have any life experience. We didn't have any dating experience. It was all completely imaginary. Everything in in the holiday world is essentially a is, is imagining what other people's lives or stories or things might be. So not you know this really isn't any any different. And you can tell I'm not particularly creative lyricist because um, yeah. I repeat myself a lot in in lyrics. In fact, that was one of the things. Like, why why have two verses when when one will do? You might forget when you're performing the second verse. Right. So if you only have one, that ain't never going to be a problem, right? 
second verse, same as the first. Exactly. That was that was another uh, that was another mantra. Keep it simple. I remember recording this one actually. This is a story. Um, uh, I think all my parts had been done, and we had uh, Dave Crawford, the horn guy, to do some parts. And there's part in the song where his horns just kind of double what I was doing on the guitar. after my 21st birthday so I was immensely hungover <laughs> it's not not a pretty sight uh, so I went into the you know like try to show him the part and the the first part is actually pretty simple and it took me a really embarrassing time to kind of figure it out you know I find the note on my guitar and then I try to remember what the note is you know Max is like a professional guy he probably didn't need me to do this but um, you know I find the, the note, right? I'm like, okay, that's the note, and that's the name. The second note is a half step. The third note's a half step. The fourth note's a half step. <laughs> so I come in there to show him, like, four half steps. And he's like, yeah, okay, that's pretty easy. And then there's a little bit more to that. But, um, yeah, it took me, like, way longer than it should have. But, you know, just the, the day after. That's what I remember. <laughs> Following Sandra is the power pop gym. It's wrong to love. Rehearsals was what we referred to as the Rick Springfield song because the idea was to that we were listening to Jesse's Girl a lot and uh, and I had this MXR fuzz box and you know started to do you know float four five one type of riffing around that and the song just kind of evolved evolved from that. I think um, what I like about the song it's got this kind of rocking verse thing, but then the the chorus is a lot slicker and smoother on the outro there's some interesting chord changes and things i mean we, we tried to make sure in all the songs that there was something harmonically keep the song simple and simple hook so anyone could just sing along but try and get something it didn't always have to be in the verse or in the just but somewhere in the song try to have something in, in, from a musician's perspective from like an arrangement's perspective it's like a little bit like oh okay yeah, they're going to do that, right? Or, you know, okay, we'll throw in a major seventh chord where it shouldn't be or something. And the, the, for a two-minute song, there's actually quite a lot going on uh, musically for kind of a dumb, you know, for kind of a dumb pop song. So uh, I, I, I quite like how this one turned out in the end. Yeah, it's got that punchy riff. But then on the chorus, the dynamic goes undistorted and nice and pretty and plucky guitars and... Um, I mean, it's an invert of the quiet, loud, 
you know, quite yeah. a loud format, um, <clears throat> which, you know, it's nice to throw that change in there every once in a while. Uh, I also really love the, the solo on this song because it's a guitar and a synthesizer, like doubling each other, which I think sounds really cool. Concise arrangement and execution, the track How Do You Know effortlessly synthesizes in under two minutes all of that which made this band truly great. And by the way, this was also a really great song to put on mixtapes, especially if you were trying to fill up all of side A and had just enough space at the end for something short yet impactful. For me, it kind of encapsulates the, there was a holiday formula, right? It's a great example of that particular formula, which is like, big hook, two minutes, like, song's over before you know it. And you're like, oh, it's good. Where's the rest of the song? <laughs> it's just like in and out, in and waste out. no time, you know. Um, yeah, this one's like really very uh, new wavy, right? Like, it's got that kind of feel to it. I was really into like trying to um, jangle like strum as fast as I could. Um, so I think this is one of those songs where like I tried to do that. Um, it was just kind of a fetish for me on the guitar. You know? <laughs> I really liked fast, fast strumming. So yeah, it's also one of those songs that sounds it's kind of like slick and new wavy on the record, but extremely loud and rock played live because we didn't have any keyboards. So some of the kind of nice arrangement elements were lost live. And the way you substitute for that is just to, just to crank it up. <laughs> so it worked well in that context as well. Uh, but very different than the, than the record. 
So Ordinary is yet another song in which the lyrics address an imagined female muse, but its true highlight is the contrast of sonics present within the track. It's an interesting song musically in the sense that it's a, it's a really kind of twee 60s, you know, Herman's Hermancy type of writing. I mean, that's kind of how I wrote it. And then Matt, like, just puts this, like, pedal on, like, maximum overdrive and just makes the amp feedback when he does this lead thing. It's a studying contrast, I think. I mean, again, if we, without the heavy guitar thing, it would be a very much a kind of a standard um, 60s pop or even like a girl group type of number um, that we just kind of destroyed with this <laughs> in a good way with this ridiculous like feedbacking Marshall thing um, that's the that's the Matthew sweet like early teenage fan club influence kind of kicking in just tra- taking this kind of twee 60s number and like messing with it I think that was the that's idea Insofar as there was an idea, I mean, things just kind of happen. Um, but that's how it turned out anyway. I remember going to play that part, and I think I was winging it, you know? <laughs> we did a couple just, takes, and we just found one that just, uh, I think it just came out really good, kept it. Yeah. And honestly, like, improvisation is not like, necessarily what any of us are after, but... Um, Serendipity, on the other hand, is different. Exactly. That's okay. That's right. That's and I think that's what we got there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Nostalgic April Cries, with its subtle touches of hand claps and reverb, features intricate instrumental interplay, especially that between Jeanette and Snow. It nicely weaves around steady, metronomic electric piano chords. There was a Wurlitzer in the, in the studio, as well as an old out-of-tune upright, which features on the song in, in, in two tracks down the, down the road. So we just decided to use those. And... Um, I was kind of into 
I guess, I'm not really sure the right the right way to describe it, but but kind of I don't want to say plotting, but very square square keyboard parts at the time, kind of this like Paul McCartney thing where like the keyboard is very square, but then everything around it, like the bass and the guitars and are able to go off piste. So in the same way that like in um in most kind of rock and pop music, the bass is like the anchor and and everyone else can go off piste. In this type of writing, like the piano bit is like the rhythm section and everyone else can kind of meander around that. So it's a slightly slightly different style and and that's kind of what came out. So yeah, I I don't know. I mean, do I, I don't think we've actually played that one very much live, Matt, just because it's a, it's really a studio number. Yeah, I'm trying uh, to remember, and I it's possible we did it occasionally. Yeah, I, we, I don't remember playing that ever regularly. So yeah, there are certain songs that was just by very nature they just they're just easier to do in the studio if you did because we didn't have a keyboard player. We never had a keyboard player live, and and like that song kind of requires it. Some yeah. of the, a few of the songs kind of require it, and those songs we were rarely ever played live unless we had some sort of nut nut job fan in the front, which did happen periodically when we were on tour. <laughs> be like playing to like twenty people, and there'd be like some crazy person in the front being like, "Yeah, play this song." I'm like, all right, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's on you though. <laughs> if we do, we'll it, try. <laughs> we'll try, but it's not going to be good. Um, earworm chorus containing simple yet affecting lyrics, the track Everything You Say shows the band once again demonstrating their mastery of the well-constructed pop song, bringing in chiming bells and ethereal keyboard sounds to embellish the song's already solid foundation. Yeah, I think it's, just, uh, it's a track that has everything. Two minutes and twenty. It's, it's exactly the right length, two minutes twenty. It's one of the things I'm most proud of, actually. It's a simple song. It's got a huge hook. I perform that song, or I've been asked to perform that song, or I played that song in lots in in over the years now in different forums and like as a solo thing sometimes, and like really works in different contexts. So like I really like this recording and what we've done with it, but I'm also happy with it as personally as a songwriter. Is it's a pretty simple, it's a little, it's a pretty simple thing, but it's got um, it's got kind of timelessness about it that uh, that I'm quite proud of. Yeah, it's simple. It's not meant to be sophisticated. You know, we're not the Divine Comedy. That, that's the that's the third record. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, no, it's just an extremely simple song with a big hook, and you can play it acoustically. You can dress it up. You can arrange it, and uh, and it works really nicely. So it's a little bit too mellow to be a single. 
track. Like you couldn't really release it as a single, but it's kind of the song that people really know well from this record as well. Which is uh, yeah, it's interesting. When oh, and I've talked. I mean, I. It's not like a lot of people know the record or know me or anything, but a few of the people I do. Like, that's that's the song that they they typically talk about or ask about or say, "Hey, could you play that or whatever?" If there's one thing that we got really right on this record, I think it's that track. Yeah, I think this song really holds up well, and I'm pretty proud of it. And this is a song we used to. I think we closed our sets with this song. Yeah. pretty pretty much for like a better part of a year or something. So, uh, yeah. Um, really pleased with the way it turned out on this record. Yeah, pretty awesome. single, Who's Gonna Find Out, highlights the band's tight rhythm section, and also includes a guest appearance by the Icelandic band Bellatrix. They had been working with Dave uh, at Kingsize, I think. Either they were planning to be in there after us, or they were before, something like that. This is our way of flirting. It's like, hey, do you want to do hand claps on a record? (laughs) (laughs) We'll give you you, you credit. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I would say this is uh, Calvin's like moment of glory. <laughs> the, those machine gun like uh, taps on the snare are pretty awesome. Yeah, it, we really get into this uh, particular track. It, it, it was kind of um, yeah, it was kind of his. Uh, it was kind of his song. With Calvin, we he had his own drumming style, and he had a really really stripped down drum kit. Because again, he wasn't like a trained drummer or anything. He just kind of like figured it out. And so he had his own thing going on. And this song really worked for him and his like four to the floor style. This is one that we typically open a show with either this or the, or the first track on the records. Pretty basic. I mean, you know, you're not going to read too much into, uh, it ain't Shakespeare. Uh, <laughs> it's a two minute pop song. I hope you like it. <laughs> it's, it's not, I wouldn't say much more than that. She's not the person The horn-laden track, She's Not the Person You Think You Know, 
is a song in which the anchored bounce of piano and guitar creates the bedrock on which all the other instrumentation lies. It's a piano-driven kind of Beatles, kind of McCartney-esque songwriting style thing. Or, yeah, Emmett Rhodes or any of these kinds of um, 60s acts. That was kind of the writing. But it's, again, it's a little sadder and a little mellower than than most of those um, influences. And, uh, and again, it exhibits my complete uh, lyrical laziness uh, because I think I would... (laughs) <laughs> Again, it's three minutes. Like Jesus, three minutes. This guys, like, come on, you're boring me here. Like, let's move on. Um, the reason it's so long, it's an outrageously long number by holiday standards, was uh, <laughs> it was an excuse to, was, you know, for 40 seconds of horn outro, um, and and being able to do nice horn arrangements. Like, okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna have a French horn and flugelhorn and and just soft horn bits. As a, as a fade out, um, that was just an arranging thing. I, I really like being able to do fade outs and arrangements because they're all the things you never get to do when you play live. Aside from the fact that the, the lyrical content fits in with the overall uh, holiday theme that I referred to before, I would say from a, from a musical standpoint, I was just a, like really into doing the arrangements, <laughs> more or less. And it's a bit probably a bit too long for a holiday song, to be honest. That was pretty fun, actually, uh, because like Josh said, it's really built around the piano and then everybody else just kind of wanders off around. it's the closest thing we, it's the closest we have to like a jam like we're not a band that jams we're a band that does really short really focused songs and this is the closest that we came to having a song that was like we can jam because it's yeah, more than like three minutes it. Yeah. yeah i mean it's not really jammy for uh you know as, as far as those things go but for us it felt it feels really indulgent you know like yeah wow, totally we're using, yeah, we're using an extra minute of your time on this track <laughs> As we near the end of the record, we get the band's evocation of the cars and the track Still in Love. Like under two minutes. Yeah, it's like in the it's in the thirty. It's wrong to love, or how do you know? Like spirit of like, we need a we need a sub two minute holiday song. <laughs> I mean, this one is like gone before you even realize it's there, and like 
that's I think a compliment. <laughs> I think it's worth like highlighting Andrew for a second because I yeah, yeah. Josh mentioned how like really good Andrew was before and Andrew like bought a VU meter um, and he would play with a metronome and the VU meter to become a human compressor because he wanted to complete he wanted to be able to play a completely consistent output level at all times. <laughs> I mean, it was really impressive. Like, he took he was, his bass playing really seriously. He was dedicated. I, yeah. It was really cool. And he also had um, he had a pretty good knowledge of um, of of what we could tap, like the, how we could tap the the best best of Motown, which was particularly helpful because the best thing Calvin could do is play four to the floor. So between Andrew's Motown interest and um, and Calvin's you know basic four to the floor drumming style, that the, this is how a lot of um, uh, a lot of songs came came together. penultimate track, Runaway to Memphis, is a hypnotic number drenched in reverb and tubular bells, and is not too far off from what would eventually be classified as chill wave a little over a decade later. Side note, last summer I took a trip to the Grand Canyon for the first time, and I happened to be listening to this particular song while driving through a small desert town in Arizona. And just that endless stretch of dust and highway coupled with the mellowness of this track kind of created the perfect soundtrack. So if you ever happen to find yourself driving through the Mojave Desert, specifically through the town of Dolan Springs, Arizona, I highly recommend that you put this song on. Again, this is a song we typically wouldn't do live. It was kind of a B-side. The production is quite interesting and this one it was meant to be a bit mechanical we were big fans of early magnetic fields which were obviously influenced by motown and a lot of like you know loopy um 60s girl group stuff and so uh and again lyrically yeah it's an it's an escape song obviously like 90 percent of holiday songs um but yeah, it's a bit of an anomaly. It's then that's kind of why it ended up where it did on the record. I think probably we didn't really know where else to put it, but we also didn't want to bin it. We binned quite a number of songs, and, and we and we b sided a couple numbers and things. Um, so this record was really um, were songs that managed to make it through a year of touring and writing, and we're like, okay, these are good. We want to keep them. It was definitely not like, well, we wrote these songs, and so they they went on a record. We wrote a lot of songs, and we threw away a lot. Uh, of things that didn't really stick or work. Um, I mean, not a lot. I mean, we didn't write like four records worth, but there were a lot of things that just didn't make the cut. And I think this one was um, 
was a bit borderline, but we did it in the studio and we liked how it came out. And, uh, and uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's how it ended up where it ended up, I guess. You know, it's another example, at least like on the guitar playing of just a part being really codified and then played over and over again, you know? Um, so like I was really into the, the loop songs for the magnetic fields, you know, like that whole um, uh, House of Tomorrow era, you know, it's just like playing all these parts over and over and over again. <laughs> yep. track the likely end of our best days a dreamy and relaxed number in which the vocal melody nicely interweaves with the lead and rhythm guitars and eventually gives way to a triumphant horn assisted chorus that celebrates one's own inevitable decline it's a track with many of the markings of holiday's signature sound and spirit and acts as the perfect conclusion to ready steady go when someone says, what are, what's the thing as a musician you're kind of happiest about, or you've done, or, or when someone says, can you play me one song that you've done? This is often the song that I'll pull out, because I think, at least as a songwriter, in all aspects, kind of like lyrically, musically, arrangements, um, it's an ambitious song for us. It's a little bit different than some of the other numbers. It's longer, right? It's almost four minutes, which makes it like a Grateful Dead song by our standards. Um, it's got a big, you know, middle eight. It's, it's got a lot of arrangements. It's got like a Penny Lane horn outro. You know, it's got a little bit of everything. And, and it's actually still less than four minutes. So um, into my mind, lyrically, it's a great summation of the, the, the kind of the overall vibe that or, or thoughts that I had at the time. I mean, it's kind of, um, with a lot of the things in in Holiday, and I guess when I was just growing up or whatever, the, um, it's this kind of idea, this kind of this glory in kind of accepting failure or things are gonna work out or this is as good as it's gonna get. Um, and this is really kind of a song about that, right? The idea is, you know, this is, um, you know, this is the, this is it, man. Like, you know, this is just, you know, hey, enjoy, enjoy the beer because this is, this is not going to taste any better and you ain't going to have the success you want and you're not going to get the girl you'd want and things aren't going to happen for you, right? This is, and, and your band isn't going to sell a lot of records, right? So enjoy the, enjoy the beer. And, and, and honestly, that's kind of how I thought about a lot of things in, in life, I, I've been, um, I've always been highly 
ambitious and under huge pressure for all sorts of uh, social and economic success and career success and all these things. But underneath it, there's this always been this kind of current, which is like, not really going to make it. <laughs> and this is a song about not making it. It's a song about a band not making it. It's a song about a songwriter not making it. It's a song about not making it. And kind of a kind of this sort of beauty in that, accepting that. And I thought that makes for a really good, <laughs> a really good ending track. I'm super proud of this song, and um, and and how we arranged it, and in uh, in the guitar bit that Matt put on it, and um, kind of all aspects. Uh, I, I am really proud of it. There's a lot of material and, and things that over the years that I'm a little bit like, oh, I wouldn't do that now, or I write songs very differently, or it's a little bit like adolescent or whatever, but this is not one of those. This is a song I'd like be happy to play for anybody, really, and say, you know, I think this is really solid writing. Yeah, I think it holds up really well. I think it was, like, pretty ambitious, actually, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, like Josh said, it's got a lot of moving parts, um, and it was really fun to do it. I think we all worked really hard on it. I remember, I, I think, like, this may have been one of the ones where uh, we did like an, a second snare drum part. Dave, Dave yeah. used to like to go outside of the studio in the building they were in and up the stairwell and like put like a snare drum up there. And then you would double the snare parts and put a microphone down the bottom of the stairwell and you get this crazy reverberating sound. And at least I think that's the configuration. Yeah. Yeah. We did that. I, I, you're, you've got that right. Yeah. And just to give us this kind of this far away, if you want to have a far away sound, a far away horn or a, a far away drum, the best thing to do is to get far away from the mic. That meant going to the other side of the building. <laughs> For the album art, the band chooses a black and white photograph, indicative of the image they would often present while playing live. You know, at that point, when we were performing, we, we typically wore suits. Um... So I think there was a certain, uh, you know, impulse to represent that, like in the album art, you know, if you open up the sleeve, there's like an individual shot of each of us. Um, <laughs> and we're actually all wearing the exact same shirt, tie and jacket. We just swapped them. So uh, we just took turns. You know, I'm pretty sure that the the one that's on the cover is actually Andrew. Um <laughs> in that outfit, just a tight close-up. Our friend, um, Matt Jacobson, who um, used to run a label called Le Grand Magistery, and I think he still works with um, Third Man Records now. We had initially contacted him to do the artwork, and I think he was uh, kind of booked at the time. So he, he agreed to kind of take like an executive um, oversight and directed us to his friend who, was actually also a musician, um, but she took the photos. That was when Josh and Calvin and Andrew were all living in Brooklyn, um, and I was actually still back in Connecticut. So um, we went to the loft where the where the band lived and uh, took all those photos. We were like kind of like pretty enamored of that like sort of like '60s pop aesthetic, right? So um, I think the artwork is trying to get at that a little bit and the uh, album titles definitely, you know, uh, play on that just from, you know, that being a uh, old 
program back in the 60s, right? I think we kicked around a few other things. Um, the working title was Gold or Gold Record. But um, yeah, at the end of the day, we went with Ready, Steady, Go. And I don't fully recall like how we went through that. But I can definitely tell you that naming songs and albums was kind of always an adventure. You know, sometimes we'd kick around like just a sheet of paper while you're in the studio and you just kind of write ideas as they come to you. And eventually you end up with a piece of paper with about 60 different album titles, most of which are like bad jokes, you know. (laughs) But yeah, that's how I recall that process. March Records releases Ready, Steady, Go in August of 1996. In the time leading up to and following the album's release, Holiday would begin to experience a number of frustrations that would ultimately lead to the band's disillusion. One thing that had happened was, uh, so Josh and Calvin and Andrew all were a year ahead of me in school, so they all had graduated at the end of 95, and they left Connecticut and went to Brooklyn. So I was kind of like, going back and forth on the weekends and stuff. And once I finished school, which was after we recorded this album, but before it was released, so like 96, June, we hit the road. Um, and we toured that summer. Uh, I I feel like we had kind of hoped the album would be out by the time we yeah, hit the road. Yeah, it didn't really and work it, out we that had way. some snags there. So, you know, like... That I didn't think, help sales now. Yeah, right. so it felt like the album came out like towards the end of the tour actually which was suboptimal right um i know that you know the label did a lot of promo it it got a lot of play on college radio for a while i think i think it got like up the charts a little bit but um yeah you know it was like i don't think it sold much you know we decided to hit the road again after it came out and that was kind of tough. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we, I, well, there's two things. I guess we didn't, we didn't have the commercial success that I think we were hoping for based on all of the, the college radio press and things yeah. and how many people liked the first record and kind of critical, critical claim from, from dorky record collectors is great, but it doesn't shift units. So, <laughs> uh, when we play, we didn't have like, um, a touring opportunity to hitch on with like a much bigger band to, uh, to get exposure to larger venues. So, so our touring was mostly like, you know, 50 to hundred person, 150 people tops and, you know, playing second for the local, you know, for the local bands there or whatever. So, um, you know, we had a few high profile gigs. We played with guided by voices in Michigan. That was, that was a hell of a weekend or week or <laughs> don't remember. <laughs> uh, that was and um, and and we played some big shows in in New York. We played Knitting Factory. I mentioned that was it's closed now, but but you know it, we we got to a point where we could you know we could get six or eight hundred people in New York or or maybe three hundred people in in DC out to see us on a weekday, which is was pretty good going, I think. But um, but we couldn't really translate it into into record sales. Um, the other thing was. I think being doing a lot of touring to try to support the records on a very shoestring budget yeah. uh, really took its toll. We spent, I mean, we spent four months just sleeping on people's floors and eating Taco Bell, basically, which is for two weeks is fun, but like two and a half months in, 
um, yeah, it's even really a young person who's just like, this is a pretty shit lifestyle, and I'm not sure I like anyone around me anymore <laughs> or myself. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not glamorous. <laughs> no, it was the opposite of glamour. Yeah, the touring was hard. Yeah, I mean, half the time we're in some place where we know nobody, and um, you're basically like begging to like somebody to put you up for the night from stage you know <laughs> hey by the way if anybody has a floor we can sleep on tonight we'd be really grateful you know um playing music together was fun like yeah that 30 minutes a night of like blasting through songs that we like know frontwards and backwards like that was fun lugging the gear the other 23 hours that were exactly it's brutal <laughs> when, when people talk about like being oh i'd love to be a musician i'm like not really you mostly wait around like touring is basically waiting for other people to do shit and get their shit together waiting for the venue to open waiting for the promoter to show up waiting to get like drink tickets waiting for the other bands waiting to load out you spend most and i, and I understand why most people end up doing a lot of, of serious drugs in rock and roll because it's really boring so unless you get really obsessed, and there was no internet at the time, you couldn't fart around on your phone and do chess.com or whatever you, you, you know, right. it really wasn't just, it's you and a bunch of other guys, like just sitting around for yet another night, you know? So, um, so it was tough on the relationships as well. It was a bit frustrating because again, I think as a band, all the touring made us, you know, we, we did start out as like crack musicians and we were never, that was never really what we were about. But by the after after all the touring, we were pretty seasoned, and I th we were pretty confident performers, and pretty good at delivering what we did. Um, sure. And you know, and we had a lot of new material as well, so it was not an easy thing. But I think towards the end, I think I, I just made a decision. I just said, you know, I don't want to be. I love music and I love writing, but I don't want to pursue a, a a career or pursue seriously rock music you know i think in, in in a lot of ways actually leaving our jobs and deciding to tour hard to promote the records was you know well it is what it is but i, I suspect if we hadn't done that we probably would have stayed together and done a lot more music over the years but it was kind of a make or break for us and frankly it broke us broke me as a person i was just like spent and um our final show was in in new york and back in our kind of home turf and it was uh it was for the indie pop mailing list so in the pre-internet days it was that was a pretty popular forum for for kind of record collectors and in in indie uh aficionados and things um and they we were uh, people liked the new release and we, we we won the kind of band of the year award for that mailing list which was quite an honor at the time and uh, and so this was a gig in new york for that and uh and it was our and we headlined the show with with some other bands that that we knew well and our friend dave was there playing um to provoke to play keyboards and uh for us and into my mind it seemed like like this is the time like okay we've we've kind of done this thing and we've made what i think is a really good record and i'm really proud of it and like okay we're done I was just like, I think it was about a week before. I'm like, you know what? This is how a pop, this pop music, it's short, right? It's meant to serve a purpose. It served its purpose. We've done our thing, right? Now we're, we're done, right? And, uh, and I think I told everyone, it was maybe a week or two before the gig, Matt. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I can't really remember. 
but I was just like, this is going to be our last show. Um, and let's make it a, let's make it a hell of a, <laughs> a hell of a show. And it was the only time we didn't wear suits. I think that was another thing. True. Our, our final show is just like, you know what? This is the one show where we're not going to dress up and put on an act. We're just going to play the records. Having developed and played new material during their final tours, the band decides to make a final record together, once again traveling to Chicago to work with Dave Trumfio. The resulting album, Cafe Reggio, would be released in the fall of 1997 through Spin Art Records. With its somewhat different sound, and the fact that drummer Calvin Chen opted to not participate in the sessions, its predecessor Ready Steady Go acts as the true representation of Holiday's time together, containing all the elements that made this band truly special. And in the 25 years since the album's release, the members of Holiday are still proud of what they were able to create together. Yeah, I feel very proud of it. I feel like, like Josh said, like repeatedly, it's um, a really good distillation of what we were about both like thematically and the songs are short. It's very catchy. It's all hook driven. Everything sounds bouncy and great, but it's depressing as hell, you know? And it's like, we're a bunch of like kids who don't know anything, but we're talking about, you know, the most perverse things in the world. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I think it, I, I just really like it. Um, I don't, I don't listen to the records that much, you know, but, uh, with a kid in my life, uh, my kid's interested in hearing it sometimes. So it's popped up more and, um, yeah, just like, I'm pretty proud of what we did. I think it holds up. Yeah. I, I would say this, I think, you know, before we were kind of trying to figure out what we wanted to do together as a band and a bit of a musical identity. And afterwards, um, like I said, we tried, we're trying to do things, uh, to show that we could, uh, became a lot more ambitious musically. I was listening to a lot of like divine comedy and then like a 70 singer songwriter stuff and just trying to get a lot, a lot more ambitious with my writing. And that wasn't, well, it wouldn't have been good with the band. And that's something I don't think it was great from <laughs> solo perspective anyway. Um, so there's a kind of a purity to the record and the philosophy that, that went into putting all the songs together and I would say it's not the kind of record I would write now or not the kind of music that I, I, I write at the moment, but you do a lot of stuff that's pretty cringeworthy as a kid or as an adolescent. And, um, and for me, this record does not fall into that category. I'm, I'm quite proud of it. Um, you know, it's, it's, a youthful, it's a youthful version of, um, of the person I am now in some ways. That's how I think about it. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Josh Jeanette and Matt Snow for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream Ready Steady Go on the various streaming platforms. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.